0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Peter Edwards. Peter has written about organized crime at the Toronto Star for over 30 years. He is the award-winning author of 18 books, one of which is actually the Encyclopedia of Canadian Organized Crime. His latest book is called The Wolfpack, The Millennial Mobsters Who Brought Chaos and the Cartels to the Canadian Underworld. He was also an executive producer on the highly popular Netflix series, Bad Blood. Peter frequently lectures on organized crime and journalism at several universities and colleges across our country. Peter Edwards, thank you very much for being on the show. How are you and where are you?
1: Oh, this is great. I'm in the Toronto area and I really appreciate um, the opportunity to speak with you.
0: Well, I certainly appreciate you joining me. Peter, you are a man of all mediums. You're focus is clearly on organized crime but across so many different mediums newspaper reporting book writing tv show involvement you're speaking you're lecturing i guess i'd like to ask which medium do you prefer and how do you work differently among these various mediums
1: Um, my big goal when i was starting out was was books like i remember my parents just revered books and so um Oh, my dad had a den where he was surrounded by them, and it was a big deal if he put down the book and spoke to you. So that was um, always what I wanted. I remember my my mother. Um, there are some authors as soon as they got the book on the shelves, she she had read them. Um, so in in my house, that was a huge deal. The but the other things, um, and I'm, I'm doing a lot more now. I've got a great agent, Julia Forrester, and the um, if you do the book, then you've you've done. A huge amount of the work towards getting onto film and TV, and now with streaming, there are a huge amount of opportunities so it uh, they feed off each other. Like, I um, I like the idea of double or triple dipping you know, that it's in the star, it's in a book, and then it's on, on the screen. That's sort of my goal all the time. But that the ideal thing would be to get it on a stage too, like a quadruple dip would be um, the ideal. Well, I applaud your ambition
0: because the quadruple dip is clearly highly sought after, but very difficult to achieve. Let's jump, if we may, right into Bad Blood specifically. This was based on your 2015 book, Business or Blood, about the Rizzuto crime family. I'd like to hear a little about the process where you took it from book to TV show, ultimately getting onto Netflix, and it was there that you achieved this shout out from none other than Snoop, D-O-double-G
1: um the snoop dog stuff to be honest i don't know that was one of those mornings where you kind of pinch yourself and there he is and he uh got no money no anything for it he just he just put it out there and um that, that was one of those happy moments like where you hit the right lottery numbers the the idea seemed pretty basic you know canada's biggest mafia guy how did he get it how how, how did he keep it and how did he feel when he had it i um before he made it big i uh, back in the late 80s i did a book on the catroni family and they were the uh, the ones before the Rizzutos. like they were the biggest then. and my idea was that if I, I learn a lot about the biggest mafia family then the other ones will fall in and so it's um it's a way of learning about kind of every, not everybody but all the big ones just because they um they'll do business with this guy and so the Rizzutos replaced them partly by shooting um, some of their um, their competition. I did that book with Antonio Micasso who I'm originally from Italy, so that gave us kind of a wider perspective. Um, the the have... film and TV was just a lucky no, not well. Mark Montefiore from Numetric um, Media is a very very smart guy. He's the guy behind Letter Kenny. so he's um, got a great sense of humor, but he he really likes stories and he. Uh, Latched onto it, and then we—the person who deserves all the credit—and we kind of get this guy's glory where we don't deserve it. But I'm happy to take it. Uh, Michael Connelly—he did the scripts, and he would um, ask us um, uh, questions just to just to help him. But you—you need a a showrunner is just um, just essential. And I didn't really realize that until that thing got going.
0: Now, Bad Blood was two seasons, and if I'm not mistaken, the first season was based on the actual Rizzuto crime family based out of Montreal, but the second season was actually fictionalized. Maybe you can talk a little about your approach in dealing with those two different scenarios in the two different seasons.
1: Yeah. And it was kind of more fun than fictionalized, but the, um, the first one, uh, Rizzuto dies. And so you, you're kind of in an odd position because the show did well, but the, uh, the gangster has gone. And um, so the, it was how do we keep this thing going? And so we were really fortunate to have Kim Coates as, um, uh, based on a, um, a real life, um, sort of underboss of Vito Rizzuto's. And so, um, Kim, um, oh, he's just sort of radiates sort of star power. He's on sons of anarchy and he's a, um, uh, he's just got a presence. So we, even though we, we lost our veto, we had, um, Kim to sort of carry on and, the idea was, why don't we move them to Ontario? Like, why don't we put them, you know, somewhere between uh, Toronto, Hamilton? You know, then you've got the border. You've got a lot of different things going on. The um, it was kind of odd because a lot of it was filmed in Sudbury, which you know, mm-hmm. like the interior stuff's done there. The exteriors aren't. But um, um, so the the idea was let's broaden this and the um and base um. Uh, the uh, Declan character, Kim Coates, won very loosely on a guy named Raynal Desjardins, who was a, a, a major underworld person.
0: Well, I do find it very interesting the different presentations of these crime dramas when they're either fact or fiction. You've got things like Sopranos and Breaking Bad, which were completely fictionalized. And then you've got a movie like Goodfellas, which was based on actual people and events. I wonder about your creative process. You had a mix of both, Bad Blood Season 1 being based on real events, Bad Blood Season 2 being fictionalized. Truth is stranger than fiction, as they say.
1: Well, some of it's kind of odd because there's a uh, a woman who's the widow of a a mob guy who was murdered, and she actually uh, took it quite seriously and wanted to punch out one of the characters. Like there's a female character in, in Bad Blood, and she thought she took her as real and wanted to to kind of duke her out so i took that as a compliment i mean she didn't, She never did get her and punch her out but i thought that um kind of rang true a lot of it is could it have happened would it have happened um and i think that some of those shows um, like ozark they've, they've got to have a good consultant for that like there's the real feeling of what would they do you know is this possible and um So we're trying to keep it, you know, that it could happen, that this isn't out of the question. And the fact that some criminals thought that we were talking about um, people they knew or that people they should know because they had a real strong feeling about them, I took that as a compliment.
0: Well, Peter, it would be great to go all the way back to the beginnings, if we may. Back to 1956. You're actually not a native Torontonian, but please tell us about your origins in small town British Columbia.
1: Um, I was brought up in a place called Lytton, B.C., which is, um, it's smaller than a village, but it's surrounded by um, uh, uh, several First Nations communities, and it was, um, uh, it, was it was wonderful. Like, I, I can't think of anywhere. I, I have absolutely no regrets, but there were no traffic lights, no elevators. We went to Expo, and people wanted to know what pizza tasted like, what elevators were like, what escalators were like. Um uh, my dad was the doctor in town, so everybody was nice to me. Like, I I, I can't, I never had bullying or anything like that. People were, um, you want the doctor to stay in town, so you put up with his, his obnoxious kids. Um, my mother was yeah. a huge reader, and um, I could just wander around. I, I mean, it was beautiful. I could ride my bike any direction, and if I wanted to go into a house, I'd just knock on the door and they'd let me in. It was, um, pretty idyllic i didn't realize how good it was at the time but it um uh, pretty much perfect and it's interesting because there's another guy who came along later kevin loring and he won the governor general's award as a playwright and he's from levin too and so it's funny that a place with no library and no bookstore turned out two guys who make a living writing
0: that actually is kind of incredible now as you moved eastbound into ontario i believe your landing spot was london
1: uh, we went to windsor first and that was one year and that was a um a bit of a culture shock because we're right across from Detroit and there were the, the riots were just dying down. And so we went from um, uh, being really, really removed from everything to, um, you know, being up close with um, things that we only see on the news. It was odd in, in Lytton. Um, if you had a TV, you had to be willing to let your neighbors in to watch it. And yeah. if, when we stayed at a farm, we'd go and drop in on other people and they'd have to let us watch it. So, all these things we saw on TV. All of a sudden, we're seeing them up close, and that was uh, that was uh, quite a shock, really.
0: I guess another example of that culture shock would have been in London. Your high school, Central Secondary, had twice as many people as in the whole town of Lytton.
1: Yeah, that was that was um, a Central, and it was an excellent school, but it, it was. Um, Uh, they're just odd things because in Lytton there was one swimming pool and everybody was there and it was a huge deal. Who was the lifeguard? We got to London, all these, there were all these rich kids who had their own private um, swimming pools and you'd be invited over. Or if you're feeling really adventurous, you'd sneak into somebody's pool. And so it was just so different in Lytton, nobody, nobody even thought of getting their own swimming pool. Like it was just this communal thing. Um, One thing that really jumped out in um, in London, I had a, an excellent um, English teacher, James French, and he brought in Alice Monroe, the um, Nobel Prize-winning writer. And he, he brought her in to speak to us. And her. the reason for that was that her daughter had just started at the school, and he joked and said, your mother isn't Alice, is she? And she said, yes, she is. Mm-hmm. And so poor Alice Monroe got dragged in to speak to us. And that, that really helped me because it made writing seem real, like this um, nervous woman who's scared of embarrassing her daughter is is a great writer and so it it seems like an actual thing that people do and so um uh, that one thing uh, that was a huge experience and she said that when she started off she had a lot of action in her stories and she gradually toned them down and so i thought if i'm going to write i have to start with a lot of action and then the godfather came out so i thought why don't i do the mafia and it, it was really that simple and um and in it paid off. I just never got the subtle part. You know, I just stayed, stayed with the cartels and the mafia.
0: Well, you couldn't have chosen a better topic to focus on. You're certainly the recipient of a constant new batch of material. Now, you moved on to university at the University of Western Ontario, now known simply as Western University. You got your undergrad in Canadian history and your master's degree in journalism. In fact, you were added to their Alumni Gallery of Distinction. However, I since understand that some changes have occurred there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think they um, they kind of got rid of the gallery and got rid of me. So I, I don't know if that's sort of a cleansing. It was funny because one of my big memories of, of going to a Western was getting a registered letter telling me if I don't start showing up for classes that I'm out. And so I I had a job at the London Free Press and I would, I would just leave at 4.30 every day for my job. Like I, I needed the money, so I... I wanted to, to learn from the journalism school, but I didn't expect them to lead me to a job. And so since I already had a full-time job in the summer and three shifts a week during the week, I wasn't going to lose that for the other thing. And my my challenge was to um, to pass with um, you know just enough.
0: Well, Peter, I'd like to commiserate with you, if I may. I, too, went to Western. And I hadn't been back in a long, long time. And I had an opportunity. My daughter had a ringette tournament in London. And I was super excited to take her back to the campus where I had been some uh, 25, maybe it's 30 years later now. And to my horror, not only could I not find the building where all my classes took place, but when I finally found that the building had been moved across the street, uh, when I went up and down every single floor of the business school, I could not find a single photo or artifact that recognized I had even been there. So they have scrubbed that school completely clean of my presence. I certainly did not achieve as you did with the Alumni Gallery of Distinction. But uh, I guess my achievement was just getting through there. But no, no record, never happened apparently.
1: Yeah, I won a, a pie bacon contest when I was nine and nobody believes that either because I didn't get an award and there are no pictures, and I can't cook anything. And everybody else well. was disqualified for using a mix. And so it was a, a controversial win.
0: Well, good for you, playing by the rules. Now, before you entered the work world, you took some time off and you headed over to that other London in the United Kingdom. How was that experience?
1: Yeah, I was uh, really big on judo. Like My big um, first passion was was judo. And when we moved to Windsor, I had an excellent judo instructor. And so I um, just got further and further into it. I liked the um, precision, just sort of the science, the... um, the fact that you're by yourself, the fact that equipment doesn't matter. And I I watched a a British guy get a a silver medal in the Olympics. And I thought I want to I want to fight like him. And he was retiring, like he was on his way out. And so I thought I'm just going to go show up on this guy's doorstep. And, um, and I'll learn from him. And so I went over there and I, I did a bit with him and I met a lot of other people. And it was um, a great experience. I just wasn't, I wasn't that great, but I I've been beaten by the best. Like I've been I've I've been beaten by Olympic medalists, and so I I, it the neat thing about that was that it just gets you over fear of failure. Like sometimes, um, you know, trying is 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 fun in itself, and so I can't I can't tell you stories about beating the great fighters, but I can tell you stories about what it's like to be beaten by them, and that was kind of interesting. I I remember once I was a when I was a sports writer, someone telling me that. it's way easier to be a good marathoner than a bad marathoner. And this was a marathoner telling me, he said that if he, if it takes you five or six hours, you're in agony. If you're fast, you do it in a little over two hours. And so he had a huge amount of admiration for the slow runners, like the ones who just couldn't quite quite hit that level. And um, I remember once I fought the Cuban Olympian and I was a perfectly upside down and it was it was weird to look at this room where you, you're up, way up in the air and perfectly upside down and it was um i mean it's not it wasn't my goal when i went into the match but it was it was interesting
0: there's no doubt you're obviously a survivor you persevered now how did you transition over to the toronto star where you've now written for over 30 years
1: um i injured my knees in judo and so that wasn't going on too much more like i I had, I think, seven knee operations on my on my left wow. knee, and so it was like I was running out of knee, and I wasn't really getting any better. And so, um, I kind of gotten quite a bit out of the judo experience, and I I still love it, but um, it clearly was time to move on, and the sport would survive just fine without me. And so i i um, I just got back to the writing. I, I enjoyed that. That's always where I wanted to end up. Um, mm-hmm. The um, I just there are a lot of people that I really looked up to that um, um, that wrote and then a lot of them came up through newspapers. And so that seemed like a way to get paid while you're learning how to do it. And there's always I think everybody who writes who's in a newspaper is thinking about, you know, what Ernest Hemingway did, what people like that did. And so um, um, it just seemed like a natural thing. And then the idea of getting paid to see see exciting things, uh, you know, I just can't see a better job, really.
0: So Judo's loss was writing's gain. You're now at the star. The Toronto Star has been in my life, my whole life, and I am proud to tell you I am still a subscriber today. I think I'm a bit of a rarity. I am a print subscriber. I still like having that newspaper in my hand. But one of my rituals is Sunday. I go about two-thirds through that first section to your column, Toronto Unsolved. I'd like to hear a bit about how you choose the topic for each of your columns, noting that these are actual cases, actual situations that
1: occurred. It, it's kind of odd because some of them present themselves. Like in the last two days, I've gotten two more where someone, the brother of a murder victim was wondering if if the mur- that murder was connected to another one. And so you look at the other one, a lot of times people are wondering um. Is there a connection? I mean, a hitman just doesn't do it once. A, a predator just doesn't do it once. So you're, you kind of get pulled into different things, and you keep thinking I'm running out of them, and then they come back up again. Um, so they're, hey, and I mean they're all interesting. It's just can you, can you get a good story in time? The, it started off we were going to do six or eight of them and then it just kept on going and you keep thinking I'm going to run out of gas and then you don't. And um, so I, um, we, we might expand it. Like we might, might take a, a broader view of it, but, but people pop up the um, um, and, and whenever they're written, I mean, the for me, the fun part is on, you know, Monday when people say this also happened. I also knew this, like when people inside or start telling you a bit more, and um yeah no it's 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 a kind of a nice opportunity to have it's um it's not a a, it started off really it was just a a temporary thing and uh, and it just it's just gotten its own life
0: well that's certainly a nice byproduct of your column that after it comes out sunday you start to get more information and i guess you can flesh it out even further
1: well you get like family members who are upset that something wasn't asked or that they wish another question would would be brought out and so um like yesterday i was talking to the brother of a murder victim and he wanted certain things just probed and so um that that is good the it, it's interesting because people do want to talk like i haven't had a um, a problem getting people to talk it's um it's finding them once you find them the talking is generally quite easy
0: Well, one of the reasons I'm so pleased to be able to speak to you today is to actually follow up on one of your most recent columns. So if I may, I'll just reset it for our listeners. Frank Roberts was the founder and CEO of Obisform. And most of us will recall Obisform was this medical piece of equipment to solve back issues. This was all pre-Dr. Ho. It was state-of-the-art. Frank Roberts was a multimillionaire. In 1998, he was effectively assassinated and this remained unsolved. You, Peter Edwards, have followed up on the case and you spoke, in fact, to the homicide detective who worked on it. He's now retired. This retired detective stated that one of the greatest regrets of his whole career was not solving the case, but he knows who did it. He knows what the motive is, but will not reveal this. I'm a little confused. (laughs) I'm kind of fascinated by it. And maybe you can make a comment on this. Can't we solve this case now? It sounds like we have all the pieces in place.
1: Um, I think what he wants is to energize current police to push on that which will energize prosecutors. And so um, I think he doesn't want to wreck the case by getting too much out there in public too early. But at the same time, he wants to... Uh, dust it off and, and show it as winnable. I think that um, they they really do have to prioritize what what they're going to work on. Like they're they're just a reams of these cases, and so I think he wants to um, sort of jumpstart things without being too pushy about it. And for me, that's a, a huge bonus. Like I, um, he's a credible guy, and he. Um, it can make good arguments. he's still you know deep down a, a, a police officer through and through and so he doesn't want to um, stick some other poor guy with um, you know kind of jeopardizing his case while he's publicizing his case. One thing i I mean I, one thing I can say is that there's there's a a lot of reasons you could think of that are romantic and it's it doesn't really lean that way like the Mm. crime of passion stuff isn't just, and this is my impression, but my impression is that it's, um, it's a business crime more, more than a crime of passion crime, even though uh, you could make arguments on the crime of passion side. It's interesting too, because a, um, a former colleague of mine who probably wouldn't want to be named, but his father was friendly with the victim. And so he, he liked him, but, but found him a pretty mysterious guy. Like the, he did huge things, but he pretended to do to, to do other huge things, and so it takes quite a bit of working to uh, or work to sift through it all.
0: Let's switch gears a little. With all your extensive coverage of organized crime, Peter, what would you describe as the status of organized crime in Toronto today versus yesteryear?
1: Um, it's it's thriving. I mean, they're um the. And a long, long time ago, when I started off, I went to Sicily and I talked to an organized crime reporter there, and he said, "Look for the links with respectable society." He said the reason oh. some people stay around isn't that they're hiding; it's that they're linked, like they're almost they're almost popped up. And um, and so, like the the tow truck business, I mean, it's, they, there wouldn't be the violence that we've seen if there wasn't corruption. There've there've been um, charges for uh, police officers. There's a cold case there that i'll probably do pretty soon but um if there weren't um, payoffs on a bunch of levels and money to be made by people who seem respectable then um uh, that just couldn't carry on they there's a big difference between a a bandit who gets away with a robbery and an organized criminal who every day pays his mortgage by being a criminal like a lot of them don't really think they're criminals anymore they think they're um they're just getting to the point and um so organized crimes doing pretty strong, the the Mexican uh, cartel stuff. I, I worked with a, with um, Luis Najera. That was a privilege. And he's a, a journalist from Mexico who um, had to go to Canada because he, there was a, he would have been murdered otherwise. And 12 people he worked with were murdered. He worked in Juarez and um, uh, the, the cartels have way more power up here than a lot of people think. I mean, they've had, there've been people deported who were working, um, um, sort of managers, uh, they, um, they control pricing a fair bit, like they help bring it in, but they also hold some back and that allows them to keep the price where they want it to be. And it also allows none of their rivals to, to get bigger than them. I mean, they can, they can prop up, um, a group, to challenge another group. They, they have a lot of power in who they who they deal deal things to. Um and they they don't really have to have too many boots on the ground. It's more like a supervisory thing. The internet has allowed a lot of groups, um, the Wolfpack is a um kind of an example of it, to um hook up with cartels in Mexico, bring in cocaine, and then um, um get into the get into the game fairly young without a huge amount of money it it used to be that oddly um some people in organized crime didn't like drugs because they they upset the hierarchy like you they meant the boss couldn't couldn't have power by assigning who gets what if you make more money than the boss you're all of a sudden the new boss and mm-hmm. um and so the bc has a lot of criminals who have direct connections to cartels and at one point there were i think 160 what were considered organized crime groups in BC, and so it's odd, but the narcotics um, make it more democratic. Like you, you make a connection on the internet, all of a sudden you've um, you're in the game. It didn't used to be that way. If something like extortion, you everybody can't extort the same guy. Like there's kind of a pecking order to it. With with drugs, mm-hmm. you bring them in, and all of a sudden you're you're competing, and so um, uh, organized crimes it's um and I've, I've been thinking i mean the soviet stuff we haven't really been doing much on that but i mean that's there there's um um see it's, it's a huge huge thing and the the amount of money we're looking at there's one guy i'm looking at now who's a billionaire like with you know b and so i used to think multi-millionaire was kind of the top level and um and this is eclipsing him and so um it's in, it's interesting because some of the um, the odd stuff is actually true, and you'd, you you want to prove it, and you want to take things slowly. But um, uh, the amount of um, drugs being brought in is is pretty staggering. And Canada is a if you're trying to bring them into the American market, if you over overfly it, bring them to Canada and drop them down, that's a a practice that's um, tried and true that goes on, gone on for a long, long time. I, I met someone who was a a pilot with a Medellin cartel in the 80s, and he made it pretty clear that once you get him into Canada, you're you're less than 400 miles from New York City if you hit the eastern seaboard. And so why fight your way up through Florida? You know, why go through all that? Why not just bring him into, say, New Brunswick and then drop him back down again? And our border is, is pretty much impossible to patrol. Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're, we're kind of built for organized crime.
0: I think what's interesting about what you're describing is when you talk about drugs, that's still a physical product. But I want to ask you about organized crime shifting, I guess because of the internet. Are we seeing a shift from analog to digital?
1: Um, I think it's huge, and that's what we tried to get. Um, we've Louise and I did a book, um, this is a shameless plug, called The Wolf Pack, and it's basically Please, about... go ahead. But it, the, the leader of that group, and they're still around and still a big deal, he was 25 and he wasn't technically mm-hmm. the leader it's just he he was this seemed to be the smartest of the group and led the most but they don't like a hierarchy the um internet allows you to make a quick connection you go into the dark web and you can um um connect with people i mean today i had a whatsapp conversation with someone who's you know on the other side of the world like in thailand it's not a big deal anymore and for these guys the the risk for a cartel is is extremely low i mean they people are dealing with people who they don't even know their names. Like they, the Canadians have to establish their credibility, but on the other side, they really don't. And um, um, what it does is is undercut the, uh, there's a real pyramid to say the Sicilian mafia who's at the top. They don't really have as much for these other groups. It's more horizontal and whoever's useful at the time. It, it opens things way up. It's um, It's kind of oddly multi-ethnic woke. Like, like it isn't the old mafia was quite racist to the new mafia is who's going to make us money. And I'm not talking mafia, like the structured mafia in Italy, I'm talking just mafia as an organized crime term, but it's a, a wider thing. And I, um, I actually had a young hell's angel correct me when I said someone isn't racist. I thought he would be. And he said, Oh, he's racist. He's just, he likes North American um black people, he doesn't like African black people or Caribbean black people. He said don't give him a break. And it was kind of odd to be have a politically correct Hells Angel telling you, you know, that um, you know, don't give this guy a break. There are also quicker decisions and it's easier to plan something um pretty awful because you don't look the person in the face. Like you you can organize a hit and never see the person. You just bring in someone else to do it. And um oh there's a guy from um Uh, Stouffville, who moved to BC, who's you know right off his tree, he's in prison now. But he they could bring him in and he'd get all dressed up and and just kill who they wanted killed. And it's not when you're just um uh doing it on your cell phone, it's not as it's not as human. There was one um exchange where one guy was setting up clothing for his, his woman's boutique. And so ordering fancy belts and Hermès and all this sort of thing. And the other guy was trying to get three people killed. And there's an odd conversation that, um, that was, was intercepted where one guy's talking about women's fashion. The other guy's talking about three people he wanted murdered. And then the, um, the guy caved on the murders, like he just said, sure, you know, just don't be too, so pushy. And the other guy got kind of into the fashion part. I mean, it's sort of surreal, but people died because of a um, idiotic exchange like that. And the Internet just makes it easier.
0: Well, it sounds like the personalization is gone. The loyalty is gone. the a different kind of organized crime.
1: Yeah, and the loyalty, you've got to wonder how much there, there ever was. Like some people... Um, oh, it, like a lot of the groups are pretty uh, brutal inside themselves, but they, they, they there's not even a um, pretense at loyalty in some groups. What they don't want though is a is a rat. Like what um, the most dangerous thing is the person who's going to put you in jail. And so um, yeah. so it's not as much loyalty as who do we have to worry about. And where where things get complicated is that they you don't want to bring in a huge drug shipment and have it all intercepted. And then you're broke and you owe a whole bunch of money. Like then you're really in trouble. So Mm -hmm. the way they get around that is they, you'll have maybe four investors in a drug, a drug shipment. And that wave, and you do that four times. And that way, if you, one gets intercepted, you just dilute the drug and put in more fentanyl and then you can make it back up again. Um, The, on the other side of it though, it means that when the drugs get closer to Toronto, you start thinking, do I really need these other guys? You know, why don't Mm -hmm. I just take more for myself? And so there are um, some murders. a guy, Johnny Raposo, who was killed on College Street. um, That was really why. He was part of a group of four, and then they did the math and thought more money if it's a group of three. And so they come up with a rumor that he's a rat.
0: Well, perhaps that ties in with the idiom that three can keep a secret if two of them are dead, which oddly enough, that quote is from Benjamin Franklin, of all people.
1: Yeah, and you can, uh, by doing the rat thing, you can, you know, like just blaming the person saying he's leaking stuff. Um, you, you can create a, um, just sort of an atmosphere around someone where the other ones aren't objecting.
0: Peter, the, speaking of rats, I wanted to get your thoughts on the ability, I guess, through the internet and first person narrative for people to reposition themselves recast rats as good people. I'm thinking specifically about Sammy the Bull Gravano. He has a very interesting podcast. He was part of the John Gotti crew, the Gambino family. He is basically an admitted mass murderer, but he has been able to, I guess, popularize himself through recasting himself as kind of honorable, or he did things the right way. How do we feel about someone who's kind of, I guess, lionizing themselves despite the the horrific crimes of the past.
1: Um, see, for him, I've actually had a little interaction with him, and I, 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 I wouldn't call him honorable at all. I wouldn't call him. They. I don't see any qualities he's got that we want in in our our neighbors. I. Uh, he's a profiteer. He um, he he works for the side that pays him the most, and um, mm-hmm. I. I've seen some brave things from criminals, but they would have been brave people anyway. Like it's nothing about the environment. I um, there's a guy John. Um, oh, there, there was John Machedry, who was one of the banditos who was murdered um, uh, near London, and and it was picked up on a tape that one of the murderers said noted that they they offered him a chance to go onto their side when they were killing his friends. They said, you can come over with us. And he said, no. And then he actually laughed at the killers and was killed. And then the, the, one of the killers said, that's a brave guy. He went out, you know, with like a man with his boots on. So, I mean, there are brave things. There's a guy who's not in it anymore, but um, Lauren Campbell, who shot someone thinking he was defending other people in this group. And then there were a, several convictions where it wasn't him and so he tried to confess and they never wouldn't they wouldn't believe him like they had they already had guys locked up and so they weren't going to let him out and so that was honorable but um I, i don't have a long list of that sort of thing and i gravano it's um i i don't think people who are really um following it take him is much more than um, a loud guy trying to get attention and profit off it. I mean, he knew what he was doing when he was killing people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, people, family members, that sort of thing, were were genuinely suffering because of what he did. And I don't see him giving his profits to them. I don't see him giving his profits to a charity. I um, And there are some people who have a, a bit of nuance to them. Like, hey, he had um, uh, one old mafia guy say that, you know, in the fifties, there were signs, no Italians or dogs allowed on beaches. And that was in Ontario. Like that was a real thing. So he said that it's just was a different time. Um, um, And I know he was uncomfortable with what um, some of the other people in his family were doing, but um, it's, it's a nice myth, the Robin Hood honor among thieves, but I, I, I really doubt that too much, you know, I don't see the mob funneling their money to free the Ukraine right now. Like, they're they're going to make a profit. Where are they going to make a profit?
0: Well, I think the real person who's brave is Peter Edwards. You are dealing with some very dangerous people, and these are real people. I get the heebie-jeebies just thinking about if I had to actually interact with any of them. You are very accessible. You are very out there. How do you manage yourself, knowing that you are writing with and dealing with people who can be and are very dangerous?
1: My I don't really lunge into things like I do think of where I'm going and I, um, um, I mean, there are times when you know that someone is upset with you and if there was a couple of prison breaks, I'd be, I'd be a lot less accessible. (laughs) Um, but, um, uh, you kind of do what you do, but, but say Louise where, I did the book with him and I asked him to write a chapter on someone he knew who was murdered by a cartel. And then he got depressed because he knew 12 people. And he thought I was asking him to choose between the 12. I mean, that's wow. the, the people who keep on reporting that's brave or Michelle. I did a book with him and he got shot six times. And then uh, he kept on reporting like he was going to retire. And because he got shot, he wanted to show them, I think, and he didn't say this, but I could see it in his behavior. All of a sudden he became more public. Like he, it was hard to get him to work on a book because he had a lot of hobbies and he just had a rounded life. And then when he got shot, it was sure, let's do a book. And it wasn't for the money. It was, um, he wanted to, before he retired, make a statement that he wasn't um, chased out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's funny though, cause you just see different things. Um, the people who talk, um, people would be surprised at who they are. Like it's not, mm-hmm. um, and it's not all good guys on one side, bad guys on the other side. Yeah, and one thing I'm I'm really in a privileged position is that I work for the biggest paper in the country, and if um, when Michelle got shot, it was a huge um, uproar. Laws changed. Um, um, it it really affected criminals, and so I think I think the smarter ones thought you know this wasn't a good plan. Um, you know that we um, in Montboucher the um, Uh, top Quebec Hells Angel at the time. People don't speak well of him now. And so I think um, I'm in an odd position where what I don't do is is trick people. Like the one, Mm -hmm. the biggest trigger for the type of people I see um, is tricking them. The reporter I met with in Sicily when I was starting out, he said that you're going to be in danger when you report on ongoing business. Like, and I've had some where you actually do take money out of their pockets, like you say. The this guy applying for this grant is is connected to this guy who's a killer, and and so they mm-hmm. lose the grant, and so that that gets you in trouble. And then another way is by uh, digging too much into personal stuff. And I don't I don't like doing the personal stuff anyway. Like I think that um, you know it's more about deeds, and so uh, like you don't want to be taking cheap shots. And I. I'm very upfront that I'm happy being a reporter. I don't want to be a criminal. I don't want to be um um like I'm happy doing just what I'm doing. I I told one guy once that you're a story to me, you know, if you not I'll find another story if you if you're going to you know, if you're not going to tell the truth or you're going to stand me up for things then I'd move on. And it's kind of odd cuz some people oddly do want want to talk. They don't want to get burned, mm. but they like talking.
0: And do you they think it would be the last thing these people would
1: do. Uh people are odd. Like we're in a culture now where people want to, like Gravano. I mean, he wants to be patted on the back for oh, I don't murder people anymore, and he thinks that makes him special. I mean, God almighty.
0: It certainly seems to me that freedom of press is something we perhaps take for granted in North America.
1: Oh, definitely, and it's something that has to be maintained, and that's where, um, um well, look at Mexico. I had some journalists from Mexico asking me for advice once. And I, th- I thought, you've got to be kidding. Like you're in a different world than me. You know, you're in real danger. I'm, um, I have people shout at me, you know, like, like I'm not really all, I've had a couple times where, where I've been concerned, but, but they're in a whole different league, you know, of danger and um, we can't let things slip. And the, um, it, it is important to just, just tell things as you see them. And, and if we do an honest job, then that means sometimes we're writing about corruption too. Like the, um, well, a lot of things, you know, where did the criminal get his passport? Why didn't he get um, picked up earlier? Who was he friendly with? I met with one mob guy once and there was a, a cop who was with him like hanging around, you know, like it's, wow. sort of, yeah, like it's um, and that, that almost offends me more. Like I, yeah, especially this time of year when I'm paying taxes.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully we can trust in the system, but I'm curious about your relationship with the police and judicial sources and criminal elements. How do you manage all of those different relationships?
1: Um, you have to make it that you're, you're happy being yourself and you're not on, you're not on a team if you find, um, um, like that, um, I'll say with with police. I mean, some. I had once a police officer get upset with me because I was on the radio and I didn't criticize another officer. Like yeah. he said, "You've been you've been snowed." You know that um, this guy. And I've had another guy phone me up and say, "I know you're you're talking to this um, police officer, and he's going to burn you sooner or later. He's a he's not trustworthy." Uh, so, it's funny people. A lot of people kind of do want you to um, uh, to be there, and I've had some. There was a murder of bandito bikers and um, I had people tell me some, you know, on the bad guy's side, can you tell his daughter I'm sorry? And not, they didn't take part in the crime, but they felt really badly for the way things had gone. And wow. so I was the person passing on the message. And so they, uh, it's kind of an odd spot. Um I've had people offer me bribes and then I've said no and then they, they just tend to shrug their shoulders like whatever. You know, it's sort of like mm. you go, you try and buy a pizza and they say no more pizza today and they just shrug their shoulders and go on. But if I, it's like it wasn't a dangerous thing to say no, but it was, um, it sort of defined their relationship.
0: One thing I wanted to talk about was the amount of information that goes public. Uh, your colleague, Kevin Donovan, has been, frequently chasing down information not getting this information made public and it's been interesting to me the extent that both he and the Toronto Star have gone to make information public specifically about this high-profile murder case in Toronto the Sherman murder case and I was wondering what your experience has been and how how much you've come across this kind of balance between information that has remained sealed and information that has been Made public.
1: Yeah, and that's one where it's just a different, um, it, different sort of um, different world he's working in. Because I'm, I'm more dealing with um, uh, people directing me to things, and or I'm dealing with people highlighting things, and um, it's generally not out there in the court paper. Or if it if it is, it's it's sealed up pretty tight, and so. Um, if um, I'm trying to think how to answer your question without getting myself in trouble, but I'm, but you, you you want you want to um, uh, people to kind of open up, but um, but it's not as much um, filing an application. It's more um, kind of being pointed in a good direction, and mm-hmm. and being so. I mean, the Sherman case is very very interesting but it's just not what i do and so Mm -hmm. i i almost um i'm dealing with so many schemes from the stuff i'm dealing with that i kind of short circuit my brain if i went in on that one
0: let's lighten things up a little peter i'd like to ask you about some of your favorite toronto things to do or eat or be at i'm going to ask you for two one of them can be more familiar we all love to go to the cn tower for example but i'd appreciate if the second one can be a little more of a hidden gem so what do you love to do in Toronto?
1: Um, St. Lawrence Market. I mean, I, I just, you can't, how can you not feel better when you go there? I mean, I, I love yeah. that. So um, uh, definitely that. I um, uh, St. Clair West. I mean, that's a pretty fascinating place. There's a lot of things going on and it's like if you walk slowly, you'll see more. Like do not it's in yeah. one of those neighborhoods you don't want to rush in. And um, um, it's sort of weird because I've, I can think of one guy I had a conversation with who big mob guy, but he made like the world's best coffee. And and it, it was bizarre because I was asking him about a, a killing and then he served me a coffee and you have to keep thinking, you know, get back to the killing. But boy, do you want to ask him, how do you make this coffee? I, I kind of like those quiet things where if you go slowly, you see more. And um, yeah. I, um, there's a lot though. I mean, Spadina, I, I love, you know, where the, like, think you know the Rolling Stones and the Alma Combo, you know, way back when in the late seventies, yeah. that sort of thing. So yeah. There's a lot the um uh, I, I don't know, I just sort of like um kind of the wandering thing. And then I mean for me it. um I still feel like someone from a place with um with hardly any people who didn't who is fascinated by escalators and elevators and we had no skyscrapers. And then all of a sudden you're surrounded by this stuff. And I get a real kick out of it when people think I'm a big city reporter because I feel like a, a real, real small town person.
0: So Peter, why don't you tell us about your plans for 2022 and beyond across all the various mediums that you participate in?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to, there's a couple things where I'm doing them with other people. So I don't really have their permission to, to go too far into it, but there's a the, um, uh, one is kind of a um, uh, historic, um, like it's not an organized crime one, but it's a, um, a pretty fascinating, pretty fun one. But I just don't have the, the co-author's permission right now. And then another one where it's got a real organized crime strain, but you'd be very, very surprised what else it's tied into. I love wow. I love the ones um, – For stories, and a long time ago, um, Michelle Logier, who I had a huge amount of respect for, um, who helped me out a lot at the start, he said that the best stories are when you combine two food groups and when people don't expect them. And so when you bring in two things that people just don't think will go together, and they do. And so the the second one is a real combination of food groups. And my co-author, who's phenomenal, is not the first guess you'd have for someone I'd be working with, but I I feel really privileged to be working with him. One thing I've got going for me is I've got a um, a great agent who is um, a very flexible mind. And so um, she doesn't sort of stick you in one little box and say, that's, that's all you can do. I, I mean, the weird yeah. thing is the story's a story. And I was before organized crime, I, I wrote entertainment and I was a sports writer and I, I love that too. So it's not like I'm, you know, I, I could have gone in other directions and I was happy in those directions. And my, um, hero for quite a while was milt donnell you know the sports columnist at the star and then scott young at the globe i mean those are people who um uh, I, I was just like a, a devoted to their writing and so um yeah I, I know i haven't really answered your question but it, it was i just i just don't really have permission from the co-authors yet
0: well i'm looking forward to whatever you do whatever it's going to be i will wait for it i did want to ask you about how your work day has changed as we move from this COVID pandemic to more of an endemic. Now, I suppose your job was never really nine to five, sitting at a desk in the first place, but how have things changed and how do you uh, work today?
1: Yeah, and it's sort of funny because I'm, I'm lucky there because um, oh, editors have um, gone along with it where, uh, long, long this is kind of a roundabout answer, but a long, long time ago when I was a student at Western, I, I actually went to the New York Times and I had a, a tour of it. And the tour guide said that an editor stood up on his desk and said, "Why? What are you people doing in here? Stories don't happen here. Get out on the streets." And so, I've been milking that for quite a while. And I, um, my editor is happy um, me saying that there's there's not enough organized crime, you know, at One Young, or there's no organized crime at One Young, and so I've got to go somewhere else. And they they really just want stories from you. They don't need to stare at my face. And so, I um. This is kind of an odd one, but I had once where I hadn't emptied my mailbox in I think two months. And when I went in there, there was a threat waiting for me. And oh. I hadn't I hadn't known I was being threatened. And there was a razor blade and a really nasty letter. And kind of the threat time had expired. So the person thought I had toughed <laughs> it out and stared him down and I just not cleaned out my mailbox. And so I got through the thing and he thought I was braver than I am. But um yeah, and it was just being basically being sloppy where it paid off. And so I, I put in like the full amount of hours for the star but it but it's at different times like last night i was working at 1130 30 at night and sometimes i'm working at um seven in the morning but i i've got other things that if i can pop in the other stuff like the uh film and tv um there's a big meeting going on today and that'll that'll be interesting that might take a bit of time and then um um, I I really believe like a change is as good as a rest. And so I do better doing three things and just bounce when I get bored with one bounce to another and then bounce around again. And, um, uh, so I'm, I'm in a a really nice position where I've got a, um, an understanding editor who, um, doesn't, doesn't micromanage and, and just wants you to do a job, not, he doesn't need to control you. So I'm I'm really freedom. Yeah, that, and I haven't always had that. I mean, I've I've worked at places where, um, you sort of run to get in there, and then you can go to sleep, but you just have to be sitting there. Uh, you, I've got a um, a really good situation now where it's just um, results or what they want, and um, um, so we, it's just better for everybody. I I'm very conscious of um, film and TV stuff right now, though. Like I I constantly thinking about that and I um um it it actually helps me with the real life stuff it sounds bizarre but it helps me connect with actual criminals the bad blood's been great for me as far as um oh someone on the borderline shady side of life said that's not the way people talk and I said oh, it's the way they talk on the tv show and we like it and he started laughing and told me some more stuff like like it it's people like oddly a connection like that
0: well, certainly it's interesting to see that there's an intersection between fact and fiction.
1: Yeah, and I, it, I, there's actually a really good article in the New York Times. Um, there was one recently just about how criminals copied the Godfather and the Godfather copied criminals. And <laughs> I, I, I know that show Ozark must have, they. I should research it, but they must have someone who really understands how things go because I haven't felt any false moments in there. Like Like it really uh-huh. is the way it works. And there are some kind of tough hillbillies whose groups don't have a name and they act like they're sort of law-abiding, but they're not. There's a lot of that sort of thing. And some of the smartest criminals I've met are the ones who, who don't need the pat on the back and they don't need a uh, patch on their back. Some of the smartest bikers are the guys who've quit biker clubs and are just comfortable on their own. And and some of the, them are the ones I'd be most concerned about if they got upset with me. I had um, mm-hmm. One guy I was writing about, where one of his friends said, "Let's go for a walk," and then he said, um, "I love that guy. If something happens to him, we've got a problem." And uh, huh. it, it was interesting because I knew, I knew that was a problem. You know, like I that guy would do it. He um, yeah. He actually set someone on fire once. Like I know that guy, it, but he doesn't need a patch on his back, and he doesn't need to be called a president. He um, he's comfortable in his own skin to a scary degree.
0: Well, if I didn't hear it from you, Peter Edwards, I wouldn't believe it. Again, proof that truth is stranger than fiction. As we wrap up, again, I really want to thank you for being on this podcast. And where can everyone follow, reach, or read Peter Edwards? And this is absolutely the time for any and all shameless plugs.
1: Okay, my big shameless plug is I've got a website, PeterEdwardsAuthor.com, and I'm quite proud of that. And you can watch the Snoop Dogg um, um, thing where he's in the back of his car talking about bad blood, which I'm I'm thrilled with. And that if you want to contact me, you can do it through that. And um, I'm, I'm happy to um, communicate with people. I can't guarantee an intelligent response, but I'm happy to hear from you.
0: Well, I'm very much looking forward to what's next from you. And again, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with me today.
1: Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed that. And thanks for being so prepared. I really appreciated that.
0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. On behalf of Peter Edwards, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.